0: You're listening to audio from Memphis Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit memphiscc.info. Amen. You can have a seat. Go ahead and grab your Bibles with me and open them up to Numbers chapter 13 and 14. As we continue to look at the account of God leading his people into the promised land. And in your F260 reading this week, you found them on the cusp of this land, this land that had been promised to their forefathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and this land that God had promised them he was going to lead them to when he brought them out of Egypt. You also read a part of Leviticus this week, Leviticus 26 that describes what these people could expect when they entered into this land if they were faithful and obedient. God said that they would have rain in season. He said that the ground would yield its fruit. He even said that they would have so much food that they would be finishing up last year's harvest when they would have to move it in to make room for the new harvest. He was talking about prosperity, having all that they needed. God said that they would be protected not only from their enemies, but even protected from wild animals. God had everything taken, can, taken care of. And then the most important thing that God says is that He would be with them and that He would walk with them, that He would be their God and they would be His people. This was the promise that God had given them, that God had been leading, uh, leading them. So before we get into this, I want us to do as we have been doing and just raise our Bibles up and pray as we open up his word. Father, we give you the glory for your word. We thank you that you have shown us who you are through this book. And Lord, we thank you that we are a church who listens, who reads, who seeks to know what it is that you want us to know. And, And I praise you for other churches like it because we know that it's through your church and the preaching and the teaching of this word that we will change the world. And so, Father, as we look at this story this morning, remind us of what it is that you want from us. Help us to learn the lesson from this people. God, this people who rebelled so many times, and how often have we rebelled. But, Lord, help us to seek you out in all things and to trust in your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Numbers 13, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. Verse 17, When Moses sent them to Canaan, he said, Go up through the Negev and on into the hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or Or weak, few or many? What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of town do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees in it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. And so the plan was to send 12 spies. One leader from each of the 12 tribes of Israel to go into the land ahead of the people and bring back a report about what it was they found. And then once they did that, everyone else was supposed to move in after them. And at first glance, when we began Numbers chapter 13, it looked like this was a command of God, that he was the one who wanted them to go in and explore But I want you to see something, if you turn in your Bibles, just one book later, Deuteronomy chapter 1. Deuteronomy chapter 1 gives us a little bit of information about what's going on here. It gives us a little more insight and a little more perspective. The events of Deuteronomy take place 40 years after the events that we just read, these things that we're reading about today. And the book begins with Moses reminding the people of these things that took place those decades ago. Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 20. Moses recalls what it was he said to the people. He said, You have reached the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has given you the land, so go up and take possession of it, as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, told you. Do not be afraid And do not be discouraged. Now notice that in Deuteronomy, when Moses recalls what he had said to the people there on the cusp of the promised land, the command was not to send spies into the land. The command was to go up and take the land. Moses says, God has promised this to you. This is already yours. So you be strong, you be courageous, and you go up and you take the land. Now, why is the account in Numbers, why does it seem to be different than what we just read in Deuteronomy? Well, verse 22 in Deuteronomy tells us Then all of you, the people, came to me, Moses, and you said to me, Let us send men ahead to spy out the land for us and bring back a report about the route that we are to take and the towns that we'll come to. You notice that it wasn't God who initiated the plan to send the 12 spies into the land. It was really the people. They had come to Moses and they pitched it as a mission to determine what would be the best path to get into the land. And I think that's fair. It's not like there was a yellow brick road like leading them into the heart of Canaan, right? But I want you to also notice what they said because it wasn't just about the route that they were going to take. No, they also said, let us go and see what the towns are like. We'll see what path we need to take. We'll see what the towns are like. Even Moses in his instructions back there in Numbers, he told them to bring back a report of what they had learned about the people, about the towns, about the soil, to bring back some of the fruit of the land. Why did those things matter is the question. If God had promised them this land, had said he was going to give it to them, that he was going to lead them into it, then why did it matter what the answers to all these other questions were. See, it wasn't that this was just about the path into the land. It wasn't simply a scouting mission for the route. It was a fact-finding expedition that I would argue was based primarily on doubt. They needed to know that it was safe for them to enter into the land. They needed to know that. And this is where the problem starts for them. Because God has already told them what the land was going to be like and that he had already given it to them. And instead of trusting him and taking him at his word, they needed to see for themselves before they were willing to go. And isn't this where the problem usually starts for us? Because the reality is that every single one of us who put our trust in God, every one of us who become a Christ follower, we are eventually going to be asked To do things that are a little unexpected, maybe scary, sometimes even downright terrifying. We're going to be faced with circumstances that are outside of our control and places and people who are against the message that we're bringing. Conviction to give up certain things in our lives that maybe we have been holding on to for many, many years. And there will be times where we will be called to speak out as we're going to see a couple guys do in just a moment. Certainly uncertain things. Now we know the promise of what's to come. We know that at the end of our lives, that those of us who have put our faith in Christ, we will enter into the promised land that was foreshadowed by this promised land right here. Do you see how God has connected everything? He's leading his people into a promised land. He's leading us into the promised land and we know that this has been given to us by God and yet do we not find ourselves at times trying to peek behind the curtain, trying to look ahead to make sure that where God is sending us is a safe place even though God himself has said that all things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And the problem is that when we try to look ahead without him, We perceive the danger that lies ahead. Our fear can often overcome our faith. Because the truth is that if you could see the future or even get a glimpse at the possibility of what could happen, then it may just keep you from moving forward. How often would you cross the room to talk to someone about Jesus if you knew for sure that that person was going to reject you. Even if God was simply calling you to go to plant a seed that he would water later on. See, the fear of the rejection might be enough to cause us to not step out in faith and do what it is that God has called us to do. Now, the question that I, I asked myself of the text this week is, why did God even sanction the mission? Because Numbers 13, he's, he's sanctioning the mission. He's sending them out to do this knowing what it was that was in their hearts. And as we're going to see through this experience, he will often give us what we ask for in order to show us where our faith is lacking. He gives them what they ask for to show them where their faith is lacking. He allows this. And so the spies, the 12 men, they go into the land and they spend 40 days checking it out. Someone this week through the Bible reading app, the plan that we're doing together, asked the question of what is the significance of 40 days days, 40 years. What is the significance of this number in the Bible? And we actually see several different numbers that have significance in the Bible that pop up over and over and over again. 40 is one of them. And I'm just thankful that God gives it to us so that I don't have to memorize how often how long people spend in these places, right? It's almost always 40. But we know that 40, when we see it in the Bible, is often associated with trials and testing and tribulation. Remember, Jesus spends 40 days in the desert being tempted by Satan. We've already seen this number pop up. We saw it just last week as Dave talked about Moses being on the mountain for 40 days as he was receiving the law from God. But what I think is interesting is that what we learned last week is that a lot of things can happen in 40 days, right? It didn't take long for the people to digress, for things to really go south. And now the spies have been gone for 40 days. And I wonder what was going through the minds of the Israelites. Because if my wife is even 15 minutes late from when I expect her, I've already planned her funeral. I'm a really fun person to live with, right? Like my anxious heart. I mean, it doesn't take long for us to begin thinking the worst case. For us to go to that place. And they had been gone 40 days. And I thought about this. If the Israelites had just done what God had told them, then 40 days would have been plenty of time for them to just go in and take the land as they had been commanded. When I tell Parker to brush his teeth 10 times, and I'm like, you would have already been done if you had just gone gone in and done it the first time. By the time the spies returned, the people would have already been enjoying the fruit of the land and the blessings that God had told them about in Leviticus 26. It would have all been theirs. But their hesitation, their fear, it would cost them a lot more than 40 days. When the spies do return, they give Moses this account beginning in verse 27, Numbers chapter 13. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. It took two guys to carry back one cluster of grapes showing the fruit of the land. Now, have you ever watched a movie over and over and over again and hoped that it would go differently? Like, like I could watch a movie a dozen times and get to that pivotal scene where the main character has to make a decision and the decision that he makes will determine the conflict for the rest of the movie and I still think to myself, don't do it, dummy. Like, you don't want to go there, even though we know what's going to happen. Every time I come to this account, I think that way. Don't do it, guys. Just listen, like like if they'd come to Moses and said, we went into the land, it's exactly as God described for us, it's flowing with milk and honey, and so let's go. And the rest of the Israelites just march in behind them. And they take the land and they live in safety the rest of their lives. But unfortunately, that's not how it happens. Because in verse 28, we see the word but. We went into the land, it's exactly as God described, it flows with milk and honey, but but the people who live there are powerful and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. Descendants of Anak represented people who looked like giants, people who were perhaps as large as Goliath would be. One of the spies, Caleb, he tries to speak up and encourage the people that those things don't matter, but they continue. We can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land that they had explored. Back at the beginning when we were going through Genesis and we got to the story of Joseph. Remember Joseph who was favored by his father above his other 11 brothers. And Genesis 37 too tells us that Joseph brought to Jacob, his father, a bad report about his brothers. When we read that first, we, we might think that Joseph was just tattling on them for something that they had done. But Dave pointed out that perhaps it wasn't simply tattling. Perhaps it was that he had brought a bad report, meaning an inaccurate report, about the things that they had done. Well, here in Numbers 13.32, when the spies bring back this bad report to the people, the exact same Hebrew phrase is used as in Genesis 37. Meaning that it wasn't simply that these guys saw something bad and reported it. In fact, we know that what they saw was exceedingly good. That was the point. Rather, it's more likely that they exaggerated or even lied about what they saw in order to convince the people and the rest of the nation to stay away. You can hear their exaggeration in the description in verse 32. The land we explored devours those living in it. Seems a little extreme. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. I don't believe that they saw the Nephilim. The Nephilim were stuff of legend, but they believed that the size of the people meant that what they were seeing were the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes. And we looked the same to them. Their description made me think of Big World from Super Mario 3. Remember when he gets in and all the things around him are disproportionately out of size? That's what I get in my mind when I think about what they saw when they went into the land. This is what you and I discover when our lack of trust causes us to peek ahead. When fear overtakes faith, when fear overtakes faith, God's promises stop mattering to us. See, at this point, it didn't matter that God had told them how good the land was or that he was going to give it to them. All that mattered were the giants. And they use those famous words that I have told my son this year, over and over again, not to use as he has faced his own giants. They say, I can't. We can't. How often have you said that to God? God, I I can't do it. God, it's just too Much. I'm too afraid. My anxiety is too overwhelming. This this habit, this compulsion is, is too deep. The task is too big. The circumstances, God, they're just too difficult. And every time we utter those words, we become smaller in our own minds and the circumstances, the task, the obstacle, it becomes so much bigger. And one of the things that I have learned this year is that it is nearly impossible to talk an anxious person out of their anxiety when fear takes over. You almost can't do it. To remind him of all the things that he can do, all of the things that he has done, to tell him that God is with him as he's always promised. We should know this. We as God's people should know this. If you've walked with him for any length of time, then you do know this. And yet there is a part of us that when we reach this point, the fear simply won't let go. Fear, remember, that for the people was a result of not trusting God in the first place. And in spite of Caleb's objections and his reminder of God's promises, the people could not be talked out of their cant. The false report of the spies became the reality of the people, even if it was completely untrue, and their fear spread like wildfire through the rest of the assembly. Verse, chapter 14, verse 1. That night... All the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All of the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, We should choose a leader and go back. See, in their own minds and hearts, they were already defeated. And they asked the same question that they have asked every time things got a little difficult or it took just a bit of faith to push forward. Why did you bring us out here? And in fact, in this case, they didn't just ask the question. They came up with a plan for what they were going to do about it. They decided that they were going to abandon the leadership of Moses and Aaron. They were going to assign their own leaders and they were going to head back to Egypt. Now, what did Egypt represent? It represented slavery. It represented chains and harsh labor and mistreatment. And the question is, why would they want to go back to that? Because even though there was pain in Egypt, it was a familiar pain. They knew what to expect. And that was better than the uncertainty of what might be. Uncertainty, mind you, that was really no uncertainty at all. They had the certainty of what God had promised them. And yet for them, they wanted to go back to what was familiar. Let me ask you, how many times have you said in your own heart, this is too hard, I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back to what I once knew. I know that I have said that many times. That when God reveals the next thing, the next area of my life that needs to be adjusted or maybe cut out altogether, those ornaments that we talked about last weekend that we need to take off, and I may start out strong and say yes God I'll, I'll work on that I'll, I'll adjust that I'll, I'll let go of that I'll cut that out of my life and for a new for a while that new freedom feels pretty good I feel God's presence I get empowered and emboldened to do more it feels like he's happy with me how often do we make decisions based on whether whether or not we feel God is happy with us and I think to myself, I'll never go back to that place. This is, this is where I want to stay, God, right here where you have me. I'll never go back. But then that old temptation rises back to the surface where I wake up one day just angry for some reason or anxious or depressed. Emotions are hard. Things don't go the way that I expect. I get disappointed. I'm faced with a challenge or a giant that I perceive to be too big. And what happens if I'm not careful? if I've not been trusting in God for every step of the way, if I've not been relying on his promises in those moments, what do we do? We turn back to what we know because we think it'll bring us comfort. We think it'll give us some kind of relief against this, this new thing that we're feeling. Even if it's a painful comfort, it's familiar and familiarity is easier than the unknown. See, this is exactly what Satan wants. Satan wants. Satan wants you to think that going back will bring you relief. But the moment I give in, I find myself right back in the chains that God had released me from. And it's not that God put those back on me. I put those back on myself. And it doesn't take long before I'm begging for freedom once again. And by God's grace, he will give me, he will give you that Freedom. if you turn back to him and you trust in him again, but maybe you'll have to wander around for a little bit. Maybe you'll have to wander because it's in the wandering that we come to know how much we really need to trust and rely on God for all things that he's given us. Joshua and Caleb, two of the spies who had gone into the land to see it firsthand, they understood this. They knew that the very last thing that they should do was go back to what they once knew. They say in verse 7, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not be afraid of the people of the land because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. We all need Joshuas and Calebs in our lives. Christian brothers and sisters who will speak out against the false reports that only seem real because the voices spouting them are the loudest. Unfortunately, too many of us are listening to the world or listening to weaker Christians who don't give a thought about what God has promised and certainly not about what God has said is right are wrong. I think we have to stop listening to Christians who haven't opened their Bibles in years. Because what truth could they possibly impart to us if they've not listened to God for truth? And yet it's those voices that seem the loudest that we often listen to. Joshua and Caleb, they knew God's word. Joshua, I don't know if you've noticed this, but Joshua has been with Moses pretty much from the beginning. Whenever you see Moses someplace, like whenever you see Moses on a mountain for 40 days, Joshua is not very far behind. And and so I know that Joshua had heard the voice of God. Caleb had been there from the beginning to hear the promises of God. And there's three takeaways that I want to glean from these guys who had heard what God had to say these guys who knew the promise. First is this, that we have been called to live by faith and not by sight. I mean, look how confident they were. Because I have no doubt that when they saw that land, there were, in fact, some scary things there, even if the report had been largely exaggerated. But their faith far outweighed what they saw. He will lead us. We will devour them. The Lord is with us. These are definitive statements based on the truth of what God has said. Because in fact, there was never a need to go in and spy the land out in the first place. And I would argue that doing so actually eliminated faith altogether. Hebrews 11.1 1 gives us a definition of faith. That it's confidence in what we hope for and assurance of what we do not see. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we live by faith, not by sight. Romans eight twenty four, hope that is seen is no hope at all. So to even go in was to eliminate faith. You remember Thomas, poor Thomas. Thomas has become synonymous with doubt, right? Like that's, we, we, we use the, the phrase, don't be a doubting Thomas. That, that's all that guy has been known for, and yet I think that Thomas probably had more reason to doubt than the other guys, Because what we understand about Thomas is that Thomas was probably a twin. If you look in the footnote of your Bible, it'll say that his name was also Didymus, which means twin. And so Thomas knew more than the other 11 guys that there was a possibility that two people could look very similar. And so this guy that claimed to come back from the dead and claimed to be Jesus, perhaps there was a chance that he just looked a lot like him. I think that's why Thomas needed to touch the wounds. Because he needed to know that this was the man who hung on the cross. And by the grace of Jesus Christ, he allowed that to Thomas. He allowed him to touch his wounds that he might know to to put aside every bit of doubt. And what does Thomas say? My Lord and my God, he knows who he is. But look at what Jesus says to him. He says, because you have seen me, you have believed But blessed are those who've not seen and yet have believed. The bigger blessing comes not to us in trying to peek ahead to make sure that things are safe, but by simply taking God at his word and seeing what he's going to do with our faith and obedience. That even when we look around and things seem to be a certain way, and the culture continues to make things look a certain way, we trust that what God has told us is right, And one day it will be proved right and good, even if the world is louder. But God says, I want you to trust me that this is right. Trust me that this is good for you, even if you can't see it right now. Secondly, God requires obedience even when the immediate future is uncertain. Joshua and Caleb called what was happening rebellion against God because The people were ignoring his command to go up and take what God had given to them. Obedience has always been the most important thing to God, even more important than sacrifices. And if you keep reading in this, you find that even when God told them that they were going to wander around in the desert for 40 years, which was the punishment for their rebellion and their distrust, God says, now you're going to wander. The entire uh, generation that I brought out of Egypt is going to die before I'm going to give you this land. And so now what I want you to do is to go back toward the sea because there are enemies around here. God is even saying go back because this is now a dangerous place for you. And what did the people do? They realized that they had messed up and they said, now we're ready to go. Like, Like God has said, go do this. No, no, we don't want to do this. Okay, then go do this. No, 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 we don't want to do that. So they're disobedient to God and they try to go up without God. They try to go up without the ark and without Moses and they're easily defeated by the enemy. Disobedience. Why does God require obedience? You know, it's easy for us to to think of this as difficult. And yet those of us who have raised children know the importance of first-time obedience and why it is that we require it or why we should require it, even when what we are telling them to do is a little scary or painful or doesn't make sense to them at the time. Like when I tell Parker to do something simple like cleaning his room, which is a scary proposition. Like I don't want to go into that place. I want him to do it the first time because there may be a moment in his life when obeying the first time is a matter of life and death that perhaps there will be a time that I will need to tell him what to do and need him to obey immediately without asking why. I read the story of a dad who had taken his family to the Grand Canyon and his little three or four year old daughter had climbed up on one of the walls and just on the other side was the drop. Can you imagine what would go through a dad's heart to look over and to see his three, four-year-old child standing on a wall and on just the other side is a cliff. First-time obedience. He needed her to listen then because it was a matter of life and death. First-time obedience in simple things is practice for the times where it matters the most to listen and respond. We must never forget that God always has a reason behind the things he commands of us, even if he doesn't immediately explain the why, and even if they seem a little unfamiliar to us, even if they involve some pain, right? God calls us to listen the first time. Third and finally, remembering what God has done in the past, it gives us courage to press on towards the future. Joshua and Caleb reminded the people, if God is pleased with us, then he'll give us this land. Now you consider everything that they had witnessed up until this point. The powerful plagues that had led to the dramatic exodus out of Egypt and slavery. The parting of the Red Sea, which allowed them to walk on dry land as the Egyptian army pursued them and then closing that back up over the army. To go into a desert and... To be provided food six days out of the week from the sky or water from a rock. Even to be present there at the mountain as God thundered down in his glory. Think of the things that they had witnessed. You know, God never has to prove himself. We, we, we think that sometimes God does, but God never has to prove himself. But hadn't he proven himself? Hadn't he shown to his people, who he was, and what he could do. And we say, well, God doesn't do those kinds of things today. We don't see walls collapsing and enemies falling and seas parting. But if you've been walking with God for any length of time, then you know that's not true. We see those things happening every day. It's just that more than ever, we see them happening in the hearts of God's people rather than in the visible world around us, which I would argue is a much greater miracle in the things that we see around us. The New Testament reminds us multiple times that we today are blessed far greater, not only because we have the full picture of what God has done, but because we live in a time, think about this for a moment, We live in a time in history where God's presence is not over there. God's presence is right here. That that is an amazing reality for us. And it's in here that we see God doing his best work. That we see God doing the most amazing miracles around us in your own life, the things that you have witnessed God do. And the things that you have witnessed God do in the heart's of those around you. And it's by reminding yourself of these things every single day (coughs) that we can look ahead knowing that if God did it before, that he's going to continue to do it. That if God can break down a wall in my heart, if God can defeat some internal demon that, that has been clinging on for decades if God can can part, seas and allow me to move into the next part of what he has for me, then why do I have any reason to doubt that he's not going to do it again? That he's going to continue to do all of those things, showing me who he is over and over and over again. The Israelites had to wander for 40 years in the desert because of this moment right here. God said that all of those who rebelled, the entire generation that he brought out of Egypt, only their children and their grandchildren would be able to see this land. Moses himself wouldn't go into this land. They would have to wander in the desert until the entire generation died. And the question I have is, when we stop trusting in what God has said, and we, we, start, we start forgetting the promises that he has made and what he's told us that he's going to do. How often do we have to wander around? How long do we have to wander before we look back to God and say, okay, I get it now. Help me. Bring me back here. Help me to, to keep trusting in you for this. And by God's grace, he will continue to bring us back over and over and over again. That's what grace is. Grace is, I will will bring you back. But how many blessings do we miss out on when we wander? How many things do we miss God doing around us when we're in the desert? We're not anywhere near the promised land. So my encouragement to you, if you're in that place, is to stop wandering. To put your trust back in God, remember what it is that he's done already and what it is that he's promised to do. Realize that, that, our, that our faith is not lived by the things that we see. It's, it's lived by the things that we know to be true. And to put your trust in the God who can do all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Let's stand up and let's pray. Father, for those of us who have wandered I thank you that you've brought us back and I know in those seasons where we will tend to go astray again where we will forget that you're always right there ready for us to turn around to repent and trust in you again and for those of you who are wandering in this room now God I pray that you draw them back to yourself And that we would continue to see and and recognize what it is that you're doing in the hearts of your people. God, I, I praise you that we live in this time. It would have been amazing to see those things that you did so many thousands of years ago. And yet I know that we are more blessed than they because we live in this time where you live in our hearts. And so by your spirit, lead us to where you would have us to go to your glory and to your honor. In Jesus' name, amen.